Let's pray. Father, uh, you have graciously given us your word, uh, words of truth, uh, ultimate meaning and purpose, Lord, and you, you glorify yourself as we give ourselves to uh, see and know and understand what it is you've recorded for us. And Father, might you honor yourself, might you glorify your son Jesus this morning as we look in your word together, might you draw us more fully up into the pleasures that we have and know in you, in Jesus' name. Uh, 1 Kings 13 is not a passage we're going to uh, look at this morning, but I do want to tell a story from that. It's a dramatic story. It's, it's one of those Old Testament stories that's remarkable. It's sort of gripping, and it goes something like this. Uh, King Solomon died, and his son Rehoboam took over the kingdom. And in God's sovereign will, God basically broke the kingdom in half, and he gave the northern tribes to a guy named Jeroboam. Now, it's interesting that God made the same kind of promise to this Jeroboam that he'd made to David. He'd build up his house. He'd have a lineage that'd go on forever if he'd just obey God. But Jeroboam wasn't David. Didn't have a heart after God like David did. And so he didn't trust God. So this is what he did. He was afraid that because the temple was in the southern kingdom that he'd lose his citizens to Judah. Competition. So he said, this is what I'll do. I'm going to build an altar and an idol statue in Dan and in Bethel. And I'm going to tell people, you don't need to go to Judah, to the temple to worship. You can stay right here. You don't need to leave my kingdom and my boundaries. You can worship right here. Well, there was a man of God in Judah. And it's interesting. We don't know his name. He's just the anonymous man of God. And God tells the man of God in Judah, he says, go up to Bethel, to Jeroboam, And you're going to curse his altar. And so the man of God goes up. There's Jeroboam. There's the altar. And he curses the altar. He he foretells what God is going to do to that altar. Now you can imagine he's in Jeroboam's household. This is the king. The king's not pleased. So he sticks his arm out to reprove, to warn, to rebuke the man of God. And when he does, his arm shrivels up. He loses the use of it instantly. That gets his attention. So now his... His desires have changed. And now he's pleading to the man of God, intercede to God for me so that I'll be healed. And the man of God does. And he is. So far, so good. So he is so delighted that he's got his arm back that he says, hey, listen, man of God, come home with me, eat and drink, be refreshed. I'm so glad I've got the use of my arm back. And the man of God says this. If you gave me half your kingdom, I wouldn't come and eat and drink with you because God has ordered me not to eat even a piece of bread or drink, even a glass or drink of water. And so he turns around and heads home. Now there's some witnesses at this event, this spectacular event, and they run home and they tell their dad, who's an old prophet. They tell him the story. Well, he's so jazzed and I assume he just wants to go hang out with this man of God. So he saddles his donkey, races down the road and Sure enough, sitting there at the roadside taking a little breather is this guy. He says, are you the man of God? And he says, well, yes, I am. And he says, well, come home with me and I'll feed you. We'll talk. It'll be a nice time, you and me. And the man of God says the same thing again. Nope, can't do it because God has told me I'm under order. I'm under commission. Don't eat. Don't drink when I'm there. Let me go to the text for this part. So the prophet says, I'm a prophet like you. And an angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord, saying, Bring him back with you into your house that he may eat bread and drink water. 
Now, the text is very clear here. If you or I were in the story and we hear this, we might think, huh, well, that isn't what the Lord said to me, but maybe He did speak to this guy. But the text leaves no ambiguity here. But He lied. God's speaking to you through me. But He lied. So the man of God went with him and ate bread in his house and drank water. And as they sat at the table, the word of the Lord came to the prophet who'd brought him back. Now, isn't this ironic? The guy who's lying about God's word one moment actually has God's word the next. But the recipient of it, it's not going to be any better for him for that fact. He cried to the man of God who came from Judah, Thus says the Lord, because you have disobeyed the word of the Lord and have not kept the command that the Lord your God commanded you, but you've come back, you've eaten bread, you've drunk water in the place of which he said to you, eat no bread, drink no water. Your body shall not come to the tomb of your fathers. You know, that's a big deal for them. You know, where I'm buried, I'm buried with my family in the place of my fathers. You're not going to have that honor. You're going to be dishonored in your death. And after he'd eaten bread and drunk, he saddled the donkey for the prophet whom he had brought back. And as he went away, a lion met him on the road and killed him. And his body was thrown in the road and the donkey stood beside it. The lion also stood beside the body. Now the story goes on to tell us the prophet, the lying prophet initially, who then speaks God's word truthfully, goes down. The lion's there. The donkey's there. The prophet's there. The lion did not kill the prophet to eat him. This wasn't about a meal. This was God's divine judgment on a guy who disobeyed God's direct order. You know, we are in peril if we have God's Word and we ignore it, or we allow ourselves to be deceived or deluded, the stakes really are high. You know, this is a story, and if we're reading to our kids, this might sound like a fun kid story, but this was a real guy, and this really happened. He was deceived because he didn't hold on to the Word God gave him. He knew the Word God had told him. He didn't know this guy. Never met him before tells me that an angel spoke to him and I believe him, although God told me personally something very clearly. And because he was deluded, he died. He was dishonored because he chucked the Word of God he was given and didn't hold on to it, but allowed himself to be deceived when there was no cause for it. No cause at all. We're in a text this morning that tells us not to be deceived. Not to be deluded. That the truth you and I have today, the truth in Jude's words, once for all delivered to the saints, the gospel message about who Jesus is, His inherent value and intrinsic worth, and who and what we have in possessing Jesus, that that's what we're to contend for, that's what we're to hold on to, that's what we're refused to be deceived or distracted away from. To hold on to the truth we've already received. We're in Colossians again. We're going to start in the end of chapter 1. I think your study sheet says verse 29. I'll actually start at verse 28. And we'll go through chapter 2, verse 5. This is Paul writing to the church. You remember, he's never met, never been there. But he's heard from his friends what's going on. And they're being, they're being tempted to, to be deceived and to be deluded related to what They've already heard about Jesus and the value of knowing Him. So Paul, back in chapter 1, said, In Him, or of Jesus, we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present 
everyone mature in Christ. For this, for this process of maturity for every Christian, I toil, struggling with all His energy that He powerfully works within me. Chapter 2, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea. If you remember, Laodicea is just 10 miles or so down the road, down the Lycus Valley and River. And for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance and understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Well, Paul says here that in order to proclaim, warn, and teach everyone possible concerning Christ, he says to start with, he's working really, really hard. If you look at verse 29 and then verse 1 in chapter 2, he uses these words. He says, I toil. And then two times he says, I'm struggling on your behalf towards this end. I'm toiling and I'm struggling. If we toil at something, we work to exhaustion. We work to the point of fatigue. We keep working. We're not easily dissuaded. We keep working to the point of exhaustion. When we struggle, uh, this is an interesting word. It's very graphic. The Greek word for struggle here, the root is agon. And so we get the word agony, agonize from this same word. And the thought is this. This represents basically competition in an arena, in a stadium. And so Paul would be something like this. It's as if I'm a wrestler in the arena and I've got a foe that I'm competing against and I don't stop till I win. And so I struggle in the arena not giving up until the battle's over and I've won. I'm working hard. And you know, if you think of the Greek games, because this would have been what they see in their minds, whether it's track and field or wrestling or whatever, they're giving it everything they've got. They're not leaving anything aside. It's everything. I'm struggling in the arena. That's what Paul says he's doing. Now, my assumption is Paul was no athlete. You know, physically he was not uh, considered handsome. He didn't have a stature that impressed others. But he says of his own struggles and toilets, like fighting in the arena. And if you say, well, Paul, what, what did that look like for you? You know, you can read Paul's biography in 2 Corinthians 10 and in Philippians uh, 3. You know, he lived a life of toil all the time. Not in a literal stadium or arena, but he's traveling all the time. He's beaten. He's rejected. You know, he is the ever ready buddy. He just keeps going, you know, no matter what someone does to him, what happens. He's writing this letter and a few others from prison. He's praying. Sometimes he has nothing to eat. Sometimes he's shipwrecked. But he just keeps competing, if you will, in the arena because he understands God's call on his life is chapter 1, verse 28. And we'll see again here just a little bit later in chapter 2. is to present everyone mature in Christ and he does that by telling them who and what they have in Christ. That's his deal. He's in the arena. He's competing. He's toiling and he's struggling. 
Uh, our 26th president of the United States, Theodore Roosevelt, you know, he looms, he's a large figure in American history at this point. But you know, when he was a kid, he was not a healthy young boy. And he had a persona that was made for bigger things, but physically he was really sick and sickly. So for instance, when he went to college, he ran, I can't remember if it was Harvard or Yale, but wherever he went, he ran all over campus because he was doing everything he could to sort of bring his body up to where his personality was. He was born obviously for greater things than to being a sickly guy. And you know, he became this guy that we think of as sort of imposing in the physical sense. He was in the Wild West before he was president, big game hunter in Africa, almost lost his life later in life when his own son has grown up in South America. So this was a guy who took on life physically all the time. By the way, you know, when he ran for president this uh, second time, he lost. But no kidding, a guy shot him to assassinate him. And he had his glasses and he had his speech in his pocket, in his chest pocket. And this guy, he went from being shot, literally, and he gave his speech. It didn't slow him down. That's the kind of guy this was. Well, this is what he said about seeing our life like Paul is here as being in the arena that we're competing, that we're called to something important and we're not laying down. We're struggling, we're toiling, we're going to finish the job. Roosevelt said this, it's not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or whether, where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again because there is no effort without error and shortcoming, but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold, timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. That was Roosevelt's view. Well, that's what Paul's living. He says, I'm in the arena on your behalf struggling. Roosevelt's point is well taken. And by the way, are we in the arena? Guys, you know in our culture, it's easy to sit back and be spiritual couch potatoes. Physical couch potatoes also. But are we in the arena? You know, if you're a Christian, God has a call on your life. And He's given you things to do. In His name and in His cause. And is that what we're giving ourselves to? Are we in the arena with Paul? Now, we're not apostles and we don't have his unique ministry. None of us do. That's okay. But in the arenas, in the areas of life, God has a call on us. Are we toiling and are we struggling? Uh, David Beckham uh, just retired yesterday from soccer and they had a quote on this morning's news about him, which I love. He said, whenever I went to the field, I tried to leave it all out on the field. You know, this, this handsome model guy making millions of dollars, at the end of the day, he says, I just wanted to play soccer well, and I wanted, every time I went on the field, I wanted to give it my all. This isn't soccer, but you and I have spiritual investments to make in Christ's name and cause. 
And so are we in the arena where God has given us responsibilities and call? Are we playing at home? You know, in the arena for some of us, it's working hard at a marriage. In the arena for some of us is, is discipling our children. That's, that can be a struggle, right? Sometimes it's a struggle to, to live with our parents too, right? If they don't understand this or fully get it, right? Yeah. Anyway, all of us, we have an arena. We have a niche in this life God's given us responsibilities in. And Paul says, I'm toiling and I'm struggling for your sake, in Christ's name, in Christ's cause. Are we doing the same? We're called to. I hope that we are. What are we fighting for? What struggle in life does God mean us to invest in? So on one hand, Paul says, I'm working really hard. I'm toiling and struggling. But he also says that my hard work is energized by God's power. Verse 29 struggling with all His energy that He powerfully works within me. Christ's energy is powerfully at work energizing Paul for the work God's called him to. So Paul is working, grueling labors, fatiguing efforts in the physical arena like an athlete worn out, but God is providing the superhuman strength and ability to complete the work. This may not be said, but I'll say it anyway. God's work requires God's power. God's work requires God's power. If you and I can accomplish something without God, it's not God's work. God's work requires God's power, His energy. Back in Zechariah 4, verse 6, the Old Testament prophet lived at a time when the captives had come back from Babylon and they come back to the rubble heap that is Jerusalem. And they're discouraged. And they realize we've got to rebuild here. And we've got to rebuild a temple. And the temple we make, there's no way it will be as glorious as Solomon's was. But God speaks in their day and He says this, it's not by might, not by your might, it's not by power, your power, but it's by My Spirit, says the Lord. The temple will be built. My work will be accomplished. And their hands are going to be on the stones bringing it about. But God says, ultimately, it's my spirit, it's my energy, it's my power at work to bring about my ends. When we're talking about God's work, God's work requires God's energy and power. It can't be His if it doesn't need His power and work. Sometimes we will find ourselves in a stage of life in where like Paul perhaps, we may feel we're working hard, we're toiling, we may feel like, no, we're in the arena, but we're not seeing much fruit. It doesn't seem like God is blessing. There doesn't appear to be that much for all my efforts. Now, sometimes that's because we're at a place in life in which we, like the return returnees from Babylon, we're clearing rubble. We're laying a foundation. There's not much to see if we're clearing away the old and just preparing a foundation. Maybe we're Laying foundations, that's okay. Or maybe we're in a stage of life where we're sowing seeds that are going to bear fruit later. That's possible. And when we toil and invest and wonder where's the fruit, what gives, sometimes it's because that's just that's God's work in the time. There's going to be more fruit later. Another thing, though, to prayerfully consider is that if I'm working hard and I'm not seeing fruit, it may be because I'm not doing God's work. Do you know that good intentions are not the same as uh, God's will? Good intentions 
do not mean that I have God's will. You know, my motives saying that my motives are good, that does not mean I'm doing God's will either. God's will is informed by God's Word and by His Spirit. So another thing to prayerfully consider, if I'm working hard, if I'm toiling and I'm not seeing much fruit for it, it is good to say, Lord, am I working hard at something You're not doing? You know, if so, let's go do something else. So it's a good question to ask ourselves and get God's mind on that. But God's work requires His power. Paul said this in Ephesians 2, another prison epistle. He said, we are, we are, we Christians, we believers, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them, that we should do them. God's already gifted us spiritually. He's put us in the time and the place He wanted us. Not only that, but He has given us good works. We don't have to get creative here. God gives us good works to walk in, to work at. That's what Paul says. So there's works God means us to be about. Philippians 2.13, Paul says it this way, it's God who works in you both to will, to have the desire to will, and to work for His good pleasure. You know, if we're sensitive, God is giving us His desires for our labors in His name and in His cause. And then He also gives us the power, the spiritual ability to do them. And then last, Paul in verse 13 of chapter 4 in Philippians, that's why he says, I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. I've got a call on my life. I'm going to work very hard at it. And by the way, God's call on our life that we're working at the things He means for us does not mean it will be easy. It almost certainly means it will not be easy. Sometimes you'll hear a description of God's will as meaning my hair doesn't get ruffled, I don't break a sweat, and I march from victory to victory, and that's the spiritual victorious life. That was not Paul's life. And that's not the New Testament model. So God gives us, gifts us, He puts us in the place He wants us, He gives us good works to walk in. It's still going to be hard. And it still means we've got to walk by faith and trust in God's power. It's going to be hard though. So we don't want to entertain ourselves with the notion that it's just easy, that I sit and I watch things happen. That is not the way it happens. And certainly Paul was God's choice instrument for the church, and he lived a very, very tough, very grueling life. So, we know God calls us to work, He gives us the things to do, and then He also gives us the power to do them. And even knowing that, it's still going to be a tough, tough go. So, why is Paul working so hard? What's he motivated by? What is God using him to do? He says he's going to, he's trying right now to do two things in their life towards an end that he's already talked about. If you look at verse 2, he says, he wants their hearts to be encouraged or strengthened. He wants their hearts to be encouraged or strengthened. The Greek there is parakaleo, and it means to come alongside and call someone to me. You know, if, if someone's struggling, if they're a little tired, how helpful it is that someone else doesn't just call them or text them or yell at them, but actually came alongside, put your arm around them, 
encourage them, you know, speak words of encouragement and affirmation to them. You're in the arena, you're working hard, and you're doing a great job, you know, and, and keep it up. Paul says he wants to strengthen them so they'll keep going, that they won't lie down on these issues he's addressing with them. He says he wants to strengthen their heart to encourage them. The other thing he says is he wants to knit their hearts together in love. This is one of the things he's toiling over. That sounds kind of odd, doesn't it? I'm working hard so that you'll love each other. You know, what is with that? And by the way, what is with that in the whole context of learning the mysteries of Christ, the hidden things of God? What does love have to do with that? You know, I found it interesting in the commentaries I used. One commentary is all over the place explaining why the text doesn't mean what it says. I thought that was interesting. You know, you get to F.F. Bruce's commentary and he just says, this is the way it is. It says what it means and this is what it means. Bruce says it this way, against those who tried to intellectualize the Christian faith, speaking of knowledge as if it were an end in itself, Paul emphasizes that the revelation of God cannot be properly known apart from the cultivation of brotherly love within the community. That's the bottom line. In the context, Paul says, of you guys knowing God's mystery, Christ, of having all wisdom and knowledge, he says you have to love each other or you won't be able to get there. In other words, Paul says if you don't have love from your heart, you won't have God's mysteries in your mind or your head. This is fascinating. Love and knowledge are tied together intricately here by Paul. And this isn't the only place this happens. You know, we said before, if you look at your life and there's not much fruit or you haven't grown much, we said look at the obedience test. If you're not obeying God, He's not going to give you more knowledge. Why? What will you do with it? Obedience is a huge issue. But here's the other issue Paul brings up. Love is the other big one. That in God's economy, it's not just about facts and knowledge and how much stuff can I put in my brain. Paul says that if we're actually going to get the understanding God means us to of the riches we have in Christ, it'll actually be born because we love each other. Knowledge will come through loving each other. Isn't that interesting? You know, back in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 8.1, Paul said there, knowledge puffs up. Knowledge alone makes me proud. But love builds up. And the Corinthians, just like the Colossians, they were hot on being smart. You know, and this is the age of uh, philosophers, right? These are the heirs to, to the Greek Empire. And philosophy and knowledge, it's a big deal. You know, John's Gospel starts with, Jesus was the Word, the Logos. That's why, because these folks get it. They're about knowledge of the Word. So the Corinthians, Paul says, if all you get is knowledge, you get proud. But if you get love, you're able to build up others. But also this, 1 Corinthians 13 is often called the love chapter. And you know it's usually read at weddings, which is interesting, because it has absolutely nothing to do with romance. Now, I'm all for reading it at weddings. Because the truths still apply. But it's said in the context of his letter talking about words of wisdom and words of knowledge to people who value wisdom and knowledge. And so in the middle of these guys trying to impress each other with tongues and interpretations and prophetic utterances 
and I'm wise and I'm knowledgeable, Paul says, you know, if you don't have love, all that stuff, it's like a clanging cymbal. It's meaningless. That's strategic, friends. It's in the midst of a passage on knowledge and wisdom. Paul says, if you don't have love, throw everything else away. You've got to be informed by love. So for us, the way we're going to grow in this apprehension of the knowledge of Christ, guys, you can only get there if you're loving other Christians. The unlovely, unlovable Christians that we rub shoulders with on Sunday morning or Wednesday night or other times, apart from a commitment to love each other, you won't grow in knowledge and wisdom. It won't happen. It's intricately tied. God is love. And if we're joined to Him through faith in Christ, love is an inherent part of who we are. And it's as we grow in love for each other, Paul says, that we'll gain more of the mysteries of the knowledge of Christ. So if you want knowledge and wisdom, make a commitment to love other Christians. And out of that, your, your wisdom and knowledge in Christ will grow. But they won't grow in the real ways they're meant to apart from a commitment to love other Christians. Love and knowledge, heart and mind go hand in hand in God's economy. I'll just mention Ephesians 3.17-19 as Paul's prayer brings up this same thing. So, Paul's working to strengthen their hearts and see them bound together in love so that, verse 2, they'll gain the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. So he's right back where he started. Remember in verse 28 he said, we want everyone to grow up fully mature in Christ. And now he says, I want to strengthen your heart. I want to encourage you. I want your hearts to be bound together, knit together in love. Why? Well, so that you can get right back to the mysteries of Christ. So you can come right back to a fuller, richer, deeper, wider understanding of who Jesus is and what that means to you. The word he, he uses here for knowledge again is epignosis, which means a precise and correct knowledge. Uh, Derek and I were talking about this last week. There is a difference between knowing of something and truly knowing something. And this is a knowledge born of experience. It's personal to me. You can't convince me otherwise. And that's the kind of knowledge Paul says he wants each one of them to have. A knowledge of Christ that no one can talk you out of. No one can convince you that Jesus is other than you know Him because your knowledge is personal. That's born from the Scriptures. But it's yours and no one can take it away from you. It's your personal experience. So His labors are so that we'll know the person and the work of Christ. Again, He always comes back right to Christ. He says at verse 3 also, in whom in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. When I was a new Christian, this verse was just profound for me. That, that in Christ, all the wisdom, all the knowledge I could ever want could be found in one person, one place, one resource, in Christ Himself. Now Paul's having a little bit of a play on words here again. You remember, they're all about mysteries. You know, what are the secret things I can find out? And Paul said, well, here's the mystery. It's no mystery at all. It's Christ. Christ is the mystery of God. And here, it's another play on words. He says, the hidden things, you know, the treasures of hidden wisdom and knowledge, well, God didn't hide them very well either because they're all in Christ too. So if you get Christ, you've got all God's wisdom and all His knowledge. And it's not hidden very well. If you've got Christ, 
There it is in Him. The mysteries out. The hidden secrets, they're out too in Christ. Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 1. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, folly, foolishness to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God, Christ is the wisdom of God, the foolishness of God is wiser than men. The weakness of God is stronger than men. If we want wisdom, if we want to apprehend mysteries, Paul's clear, it's hidden, it's wrapped up, it's contained in Christ Himself. And His work, and His toil, for their encouragement, for their love, goes right back to that same thing so that you can apprehend Christ Himself. At verse 4, he switches gears a little bit and he says all of this so that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Paul's writing a letter because people are trying to deceive and delude the Colossians. The work of deception is going on when this letter is written. And that's still the case today. Paul says, let no one delude you. Notice this also, how all-inclusive Paul is here. You know, in Romans 3, when Paul's talking about uh, all men are sinners before God, he says there's none that seeks after God. There's none. That would mean no one. And then he says, to make the point, no, not one. If there's any ambiguity, no, not even a single one. Well, here he says in chapter 2 that no one may delude you. No one. And then in verse 8 he says that no one take you captive by philosophy. And then in verse 16, let no one pass judgment on you. And then in verse 18, let no one disqualify you. Who does this leave out? No one. You know, all inclusive. And then if you go back to chapter 1, verse 28, we proclaim Christ warning everyone, teaching Everyone, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Paul is all-inclusive on this. His goal is that every single Christian grows up into the full maturity that we're called to be in Christ and that no Christian at any time by any person would be deceived or deluded like the man of God in 1 Kings 13 was. No one, no one, no one deluded. Everyone mature in Christ. You know, in Paul's day, depending on the epistle you read, you've got false prophets, you've got pseudo-apostles, you've got people who claim divine revelation through dreams, visions, or angels. And, you know, we've got all those today, too. Things haven't changed very much. You know, if you turn on your television, and yes, to the Christian station, you can see all of this in spades, morning, noon, and night. You know, we're using the term Christian broadly, because it's whoever's paying for the time, the airtime. But we've got these same people calling themselves Christians. This is just like Colossae, absolutely the same. Promising you mysteries in Christ, secrets, answers to prayer, if only you will jump through their hoop. That usually involves a check of some amount, for sure. But it may include other things as well. This is exactly the same spirit that was at work in Colossae. Exactly the same. 
Paul says this, if anyone, 1 Timothy 6, teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. It doesn't matter how much money someone makes. It doesn't matter what kind of standing they have in the social circles around you. It doesn't matter how many books they've sold. It doesn't matter what their speaking fees are. It doesn't matter how many people are following them on their blog or their website or their television or their radio shows. It doesn't matter. Paul says be very careful. Let no one delude you. Let no one deceive you. And he says here, it will sound plausible. It will sound rational. It will sound as if it makes sense. But don't believe them. Don't be deceived. If they don't bring the same message I'm bringing you, and that's the same gospel Epaphras had already preached, don't listen to them. Don't buy what they're selling. Their credentials don't matter. Let no one deceive or delude you. You know, related to any of the cults or the other religious groups that claim Christianity, we'll look at some of these specifics in the next month or so. But when people come to your door to share another gospel, they're sharing what they believe are rational arguments for why Jesus isn't God. They're sharing what they think are very reasonable lines of argument with you of why the biblical view, Paul's view of Jesus, is the wrong view. Now, they won't even state it that way, of course. But they want it to sound rational and logical. And the truth is, if we don't read our Bibles, if we don't know what Paul preached and wrote, what is our defense against the deceivers and the deluders? We really don't have a defense. You know, we're saying that in Christ are hidden all the mysteries of God and all the, the wisdom and the knowledge of God, but how do we get those practically? How do you and I get to know Christ fully? Because for most of us, He's not here physically speaking to us. And Paul says, be careful of people who tell you they had a dream and Jesus spoke with them. And by the way, I'm not saying Jesus never appears in dreams or speaks to people. But that's not where we put credibility. So, if we're not reading our Bibles, if we don't know Paul's doctrine, we're not going to know Paul's Jesus. In Isaiah's day, the people of Israel, instead of going to God's prophets, they were going to spiritists and mediums. And by the way, that's today too, isn't it? And God rebukes them through Isaiah. And he says, you know, why are you going to the dead as if they're going to give you knowledge? They're in the grave and they're separated. But he said in Isaiah 8, verse 20, to the law and the prophets. If those people speaking to you in Yahweh's name aren't referencing the law and the prophets, the Bible they had at that time, Isaiah says there's no light in them. There's no revelation from God to be had in what they're sharing with you if they're not referencing the truth you already have. So the Scriptures, the Bible itself, is the acid test for those who would otherwise deceive or delude us. And it means, guys, that if we're not in the book, 
if we're not digging into the Scriptures. And by the way, if you check our visitor's brochure, you'll see that it invites anyone that's a visitor to Lion and Lamb to compare what they hear taught here with what the Bible says. Because we believe that's the acid test. That's the standard against which you can measure anything. Guys, if we don't know what the Bible teaches, how do we know the Jesus that the Bible presents? Our ability to know the mysteries of God and all the hidden wisdom and knowledge in Christ is based on us meeting Him in the Scriptures. So telling people to read your Bible, this isn't a boring exercise. I meet Christ in the Bible. And I meet Him in the Old Testament just like I meet Him in the New Testament. So to the Law and the Prophets or to Paul's teaching, when someone's presenting rational-sounding arguments, go back to the source. Go back to Paul. Go back to the New Testament. Go back to the Old Testament. Go back to the Scriptures. Paul says, I'm with you in spirit last there at verse 5. He's not with them physically. You, you can imagine if you send a son or daughter off to college or if they're at a summer camp, you know, as a parent, don't you sort of wish, I wish I could be with them. You know, to hear what they're hearing and give them feedback to, to encourage them or if somebody's getting down on them, if they feel isolated or lonely or whatever, I wish I could be with them physically to encourage them. But Paul's not with them physically and he can't be. But he wants to encourage them. So he says, I'm absent physically, but I'm with you in spirit. And you guys are doing a great job, by the way. Keep it up. Uh, when he had told the Corinthian Christians they needed to kick a man out of the church for unrepented sexual immorality, he told them, I'll be with you in spirit. This was hard for them. It sort of, sort of went against the grain of their thinking also. So Paul says, I'm going to be with you there in spirit. That's a little different in Matthew 28 when Jesus commissions the apostles to evangelize the world. He says the same thing. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, Jesus is not with us physically. And this is a better word because Jesus is with us by a spirit. I mean, as Christians, we have the spirit of God in us. So he is with us, but he's not with us physically. And Paul says, I'm not there physically, but I want you to know you're on my heart, you're on my mind, I'm praying for you, I'm with you in spirit, and I want you to be encouraged. <clears throat> Paul says, let no one delude you because others are trying to do just that. And people in the world around us will try and delude us. So this isn't a warning to those folks 2,000 years ago that doesn't apply to us. It's in spades today in the communication age in which we live. You know, the man of God from Judah who preached against Jeroboam and his altar chose, ridiculously so, to take the word of a stranger as God's word and a vision from angels over the clear word God had specifically spoken to him and he died. He was executed by a lion, by God. Because he allowed himself to be deceived and deluded. And make no mistake, the stakes are high for us related.